Hi, I'm Mandy. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast for Harrisonburg Nazarene Church. Please subscribe for updates and new episodes to the podcast. Also, you can now search for our podcast on Spotify. Join us each Sunday at 1030 a.m. on Facebook Live. Be sure to like or follow our page while you're there. This morning, we're going to continue in our series as we uh, journey towards Easter, when we journey towards uh, the cross, uh, a series that is very challenging, challenging for a few ways. I am the kind of person, and I've shared this before, that does not particularly enjoy conflict. Now, I thought everyone was like me until I met a few of you, a few of you that for whatever reason you embrace conflict, you seem to run towards it, you seem to thrive on it, and people like you, quite honestly, are sick. I I don't get it. (laughs) I don't understand you. I don't understand. I'm fascinated by you. I want to observe, but I don't get it because I thought everyone was like me. I thought everyone like me, at the sight of conflict, the sound just went running, went hiding, wanted to curl up into the fetal position until it went away, right? Because seriously, most of my life I spent as a people pleaser, somebody that just wanted everybody to be happy, wanted everybody to get along, kind of this idea. And I've had to learn, first of all, you can't really live that way. It's not a healthy way to live. But also it's not a realistic way to live because what I'm learning the older I get is that there is some tension in our lives that is actually necessary. That's crazy, but if I could live in a world where no conflict existed, and that, that, that would actually be an unhealthy world to live in because conflict, tension in our lives is necessary. When I read the gospel, and if I read the gospel correctly, it actually makes me a little uncomfortable. And it should, because a, a gospel that where we remove all the tension... And a gospel that we read that doesn't make us uncomfortable is actually a gospel that we kind of manufacture, that we manufacture, and it's really not true. A gospel in which we manufacture and make it only read the parts that we like, don't read the parts that challenge us, a gospel like that it doesn't challenge us, it doesn't compel us, it just makes us feel good, it kind of allows us to live safe comfortable lives. It doesn't involve taking risks or stepping out in faith. And this is what I believe to be true. This is what I believe to be true. A comfortable gospel is an empty gospel. A comfortable gospel is an empty gospel. It has no power in our lives. It has no power in our lives and it has no relevance to the world around us. Because what we've done is instead of just reading God's word and embracing what it is that he calls us to, we take the parts that we want so that we remove tension and we feel comfortable. And that's what this series is all about. This series we're in the midst called The Uncomfortable Jesus means if we take the words of Jesus seriously and if we take the gospel seriously, it's going to make us feel a little uncomfortable. And as much as we might be tempted to run the other way, as much as we might be tempted to, ooh, quick, turn that page, we can't if we're called to be the church, the people of God today in 2019. And so today we're going to continue in this journey. This journey really began for me last fall, and it began with two verses of Scripture in Luke chapter 15. Uh, We'll turn in just a minute to our main text for today, but on the screen behind me, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it's the beginning to a very famous passage of Scripture where Jesus talks about a a lost coin and a lost sheep 
and a lost son, and before this really famous passage of Scripture, in these two verses, it says this, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man, Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God, has come, and he's welcoming sinners. He's welcoming tax collectors, and he's eating with them. As I began to read those words, I began to read them and understand why this would have made the religious leaders very uncomfortable. Whoa, 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 I thought Jesus was one of us. I thought he was religious, and I thought he cared about the law, and yet he's spending his time with sinners. And this is true, as I began to think about it more and more, that Jesus, that Jesus attracted sinners. Look at what it said in Luke 15, 1 and 2, that they gathered around him. He attracted sinners, but the religious leaders repelled them. That Jesus attracted sinners, but the religious leaders of the day repelled them, and that makes me very uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable because it means that Jesus was okay welcoming outsiders and welcoming people that might make me feel uncomfortable and welcoming people that I probably would disagree with their lifestyle. And that alone makes me very uncomfortable. And so really, out of that thought and that idea, this series was birthed. But I want to take a minute to focus on one group of people represented in Luke 15, and that's tax collectors. You saw it there. It says, this man welcomes tax collectors and sinners. And that may not mean a lot to us. I mean, I don't think any of us love paying our taxes. So whoever collects them, we're probably not like, they're not like our favorite, you know, but good people, honest people. But you have to understand the culture in the day in which Jesus lived, that the Jews were under Roman rule. And because of that, the Romans needed a cost-effective way to collect taxes. So rather than doing it themselves, what they would actually do is they would put these kind of jobs up for sale. So Jews could apply or pay to have one of these jobs, and by paying to have one of these jobs, what they would effectively do is they would do the bidding of Rome. They would do the bidding of the evil empire, Roman rule. And by partnering with them, what they would do is they would collect the taxes, they would give whatever they needed to to Rome, but then they would pad their own pockets, they would keep extra for themselves. No one really had any way of knowing how much tax they actually owed, so the tax collector would be able to manipulate, to kind of fudge the lines a little bit, and they would be able to profit. And so not only were they looked down upon because they were partnering with the enemy, but they were also uh, taking advantage of their fellow Jewish brother and sister by lining their own pockets with their taxes. So they were unclean. They were unclean because they were associated with the Roman enemy, but they were also cheats and crooks. Really, they were the wrong side. They were on the wrong side. That for the Jewish brothers and sisters, we talked last week about the example of the Samaritan, and the Samaritan represented a cultural divide. The cultural divide. The tax collectors, they were Jews, So they weren't separated by culture, but they were separated by their allegiance, their allegiance and their connection to the enemy, to Rome. They were on the wrong side. I was trying to think of a modern day example of this, this idea of the wrong side, of being on the wrong side of the group, the wrong side of the issue, and I could not help but think of the most obvious example that I know. I mean, if you, I didn't grow up in New England, I married into it, you know, but if you grow up as a Red Sox fan, I don't know at what age you're supposed to teach your children, but it's pretty young. You teach them 
what the right side is and what the wrong side is. I mean, I'm here to tell you, I was at a Red Sox game. I was in college. So it was like uh, late April, early May. We're playing the Kansas City Royals. We're winning. It's the seventh inning. And in the middle of the crowd, they start chanting an anti-Yankees chant that I won't say out loud. But, but that's how much the Red Sox hate the Yankees. It's not a dislike. It's not a distaste. It's like a hate for the Yankees. In fact, for many, many years, you know this, the Red Sox were so terrible and never did anything. The only joy they would take is if the Yankees did not win. Like, even if they couldn't win it, their only hope was we're rooting for any team that plays the Yankees. Because if you're a Red Sox fan, it's clear who was on the right side and who was on the wrong side. I don't know what point in my, my relationship with Lauren, if it would have gotten really uncomfortable if she decided she was a Yankees fan, I probably would have said, I think we just need to be friends. Uh, I just, I don't know that I could have entered into a covenant marriage relationship with that. So you know, my kids, we have pastors on our staff that are Yankees fans, and I'm, I'm nervous about that, you know, but I'm trying to be like Jesus and love them anyway. But I'm here to tell you, in my life, there is a wrong side and there is a right side. So what about you? Uh, can you relate to this idea of someone that's on the wrong side? Think about it with me this morning. The wrong side of government, the wrong side of politics, the wrong side of religion, the wrong side of town, the wrong side of the world, the wrong side of an issue. We all have that. We all resonate with that group. Those people, in the us versus them, who is the them in your life? Tax collectors. <laughs> tax collectors represented those who were on the wrong side. And the truth is, as we read the gospel, we cannot ignore God's heart for those on the wrong side. If you would now turn to Matthew chapter 9, everything that I've said this morning is to get us there, to get us to this passage of scripture where Jesus has an encounter with someone on the wrong side. Someone that would have been an outcast. Someone that would have been seen as unclean. Someone that would have been seen as a cheat and a crook. And while the religious leaders repelled people like that, Jesus just attracted them, who he was. And so we're going to read, uh, starting with verse 9 of Matthew chapter 9, an encounter that Jesus has with someone on the wrong side. Starting with uh, verse 9, it says this, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' heart for those on the wrong side is undeniable. It's undeniable. And really, I think we can see it in Matthew's gospel and through his life, and specifically these uh, few verses of scripture, I think we can see it displayed in three different ways that I want to share with you this morning. First of all, God's heart for those on the wrong side was that they would experience welcome. Experience welcome. 
Look again what is happening. Another scene where Jesus, now he's not just welcoming uh, tax collectors and sinners to a random place. No, he's in the home of a tax collector. He is on enemy lines, on the enemy front, and sharing a meal. Sharing a meal that really, you know, meant something. In the Judean culture, sharing a meal, there was a level of intimacy here. There was a level of some sort of covenant agreement, a friendship. As you gather around a meal and you enter into someone's home, that meant something. And what Jesus is saying here and why the religious leaders are up in arms is because he is welcoming those on the wrong side. He is welcoming those where we would draw the line and create a barrier. Jesus is welcoming them anyway. And man, that makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) Does it you? Doesn't it feel more comfortable to just create the lines and create the divide and you stay over here and I'll stay over here and I can only come to your house if you change this and you do this and you agree to this and you... It's not what it says. It says Jesus welcomed them. But next, uh, not just that, but Jesus' heart for those on the wrong side was that they would experience calling. A calling that he had for them. Jesus didn't just rub shoulders with tax collectors. He didn't just come eat meatloaf and run away the other direction. No, no, no. Look at what's happening in this passage. Jesus is calling his disciples. Jesus is setting a course for his ministry where he will call a select group that he will invest in and he will share uh, God's wisdom. And these are the insiders, those that get to spend the most time with Jesus. Not insiders that he excluded others, but they got to experience the inside parts of his ministry. They got to see suffering. They got to experience not just the joys of the ministry, but the heartache of it. These are those that ultimately, when Jesus is gone, he's going to entrust the future of the kingdom. And so I don't know about you, but if I am selecting those kind of people, man, I'm probably going to find the best and the brightest, and the most religious, and the cleanest, and the best smelling, and I'm going to line them all up, but that's not what Jesus did. He looks at the tax collector, Matthew, and says, yeah, you, I'm calling you. That should mess with us a little bit, because Matthew was on the wrong side. He's a tax collector. That's not the one you call God. That's not the one that you use. That's not him. No, 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 you use the religious. You use the ones that have their act together, but that's not what Jesus was saying. This idea of follow me is not just, come on, let's take a walk. No, no, no. This is rich language in a culture where a rabbi would literally have disciples that would follow them. And so what Jesus is saying is, come, be my disciple. Leave your life, leave your past, surrender, come, follow me. And the gospel says that that's what Matthew did. He came and followed Jesus' heart. Look at what it says in verse 12 and 13 of Matthew chapter 9. It says this, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a lot of reasons why I could never be a doctor. (laughs) They go to school for way too long. I I don't even understand how many years they're in school, you know? So that's not my thing. I was never great at science, so that's two strikes. But the big strike against me and being a doctor is I get super squeamish around really weird stuff. Blood, you know, even I've cleaned up like my kids getting sick. Mom, you know, I've done that, but I'm doing it while like gagging and the other, you're like, I'm just not good at any of that stuff. And the reality is... (laughs) 
The reality is, if there was a kind of doctor that existed that only had to work with people who were well, I think that would appeal to me. <laughs> Can you imagine? I have a doctor's office, and they call in, uh, are you sick in any way? Yeah, I'm not feeling, I'm sorry, you're going to have to go to the doctor across town. We only take people that are well here. <laughs> I think I could do that. I think I could do that. I don't have to look at any weird rashes or listen to any weird breathing or touch people that are feverish. I don't have to do any of that. I just have to deal with people that are well. I think I could do that, but that's a pretty silly imagery, right? Because that's ultimately not all that doctors, oh, they do some well visits, we're grateful for that, but that's not why the doctors are there. <laughs> that's not their job, that's not their calling. And Jesus is in the midst of this, in the midst of this idea of, of em- embracing an outsider, he's making a powerful statement to the religious leaders. And what he's saying is this, I have not come for those that have their acts together. I have not come for those that feel they are righteous. By the way, what he's really saying is there is no one righteous. He'll say that later in scripture. There is no one righteous. No, not one. But what Jesus is saying is I haven't come for those that have their act all together. I haven't come for those that are up in their ivory tower. I haven't come for those that can run down the checklist of all the ways that they are perfect and fulfill every... That's not who I've come for. I've come for the sick. I've come for those that need a savior. I've come for those that recognize their need for me. That's why I've come. And so what Jesus is saying here is powerful. And what he's saying is, that's who I've come to call not the religious elite, not those that that don't need, they don't need a savior. They've got their own form of righteousness. Why I've come, why I've come is to let all those know, oh yeah, those that are on the inside and the outside, us and them, I've let them all know that they are called to the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is not about us, it's about all, and that's what Jesus is saying, that he wants them to know, even those on the wrong side, that they're called. And we believe that the provenient grace of God is always going before them, always seeking after them, always drawing them back to a God who says, I'm calling you. Would you come? Would you follow me? There's no one too far gone that he isn't desperate for them to come back to him. Finally, what Jesus is saying here is he wants those on the wrong side to experience purpose. That he has, listen, this is an incredible step. It's not just that he welcomes them. Oh yeah, come, let's have a meal and I'm not afraid to go shoulder to shoulder with you. It's not just that. It's that he's saying, you belong in my kingdom. You have a place in my kingdom. You can come and follow me. You can be a disciple. And to take it a step further, what Jesus is actually saying is, I can use your life for my glory. Even a tax collector even an enemy, even a cheat and a crook. I can use you. Do you know how I know that? Because look at what Matthew's life represented. He was a disciple. Yeah, we know that, but he wasn't just a disciple. He went on and and after Jesus would die and after he was resurrected, he was commissioned to go and carry the good news. And Matthew became a missionary, a missionary that would take the good news of Jesus Christ, not just to himself, but to his neighbors and everywhere. And in fact, Matthew became the vocal piece. He became, what is this scripture? What is the gospel? What is it? Well, it's, it's just a man, Matthew, a man being used by God to share what we believe is profoundly the inspired word of God. And so Matthew was not just a random dude. He was not just a random tax collector. He was not just somebody that got to hang out with Jesus. He was one that God used to literally bring us 
the gospel today. The reason that we're reading these words are because the life of Matthew, the life of someone that was on the wrong side that God could use for his glory. We can't read these words. We can't read these words and have permission to give up on those on the wrong side. Why? Because the one who wrote the words was on the wrong side. But Jesus saw something in him that no one else did. He believed in something in him, a potential, a God-given potential. And the reality is for you and for me is that Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not about us and them. My kingdom is not about dividing insiders and outsiders. My kingdom is not about performing and checking off boxes and following a list of rules. That's sacrifice. That's what the sacrifice represented, a system, a sacrificial system by which you would come and part of your worship was making a sacrifice. And man, that's good and that's in line with so much of what the old covenant was, but Jesus is saying, that's not what I desire. I desire mercy. I desire your hearts. I don't just want your actions. I don't want you to just go through the motions. I don't want you to just do everything that's correct, but your heart is far from me. I desire mercy not your sacrifice. Jesus today, his words for us are a little uncomfortable. Last week, I I got the privilege of speaking with some of you, and together, we're just continuing to wrestle with this uncomfortable Jesus. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus said the Samaritan, the one that was the outcast, was the one that we should love. And what does that look like today? What does it look like to love those that our society, that the church, that our culture would draw the line and say it's us and them. And you can love them when they come and fit into your box, but so what does it mean to do that? And I I actually think these words today are a powerful illustration. I think it begins, I think loving these people, these people, I think loving those that make us uncomfortable begins by what we believe. Because our beliefs inform our actions. Our belief is what, and so I think loving them has to begin by believing three things. First of all, I think we have to believe that they are welcome. That there's not a wall built up around us or our church or our home to keep them away. I think we have to believe that if Jesus said, if he had 99 sheep and he would leave them to go find the one that was lost, I think we have to believe that about everyone. I also think that we have to believe that they are called, that they are invited to be a part of the kingdom of God, that when Jesus says, follow me, he didn't just say that to us. He didn't just say that to us. He says that to all men and women who would take up their cross and follow. That's an invitation that extends to every single person in your life. And I think if we can begin by believing that, Lord, help me to believe that person who opposes everything that I believe. That person that stands in direct opposition to the lifestyle that I live. That person that it appears like their agenda is to bring me down. Help me to believe that even they have a place in your kingdom. Even they are invited to your kingdom. Even they are not excluded. Even they are not too far gone. That I don't have permission to give up on anyone. Help me believe that, Lord. The third thing would be, Lord, help me to believe that you can use people like that. Are you kidding me? Think about the gospel that we claim to believe. Think about God's word. It is filled with men and women who were not good enough, who made mistakes like big mistakes, who were not the beautiful, perfect illustrations, but who were they? They were people that God could use and people that he did use to bring about his glory, to bring about his redemption, ultimately to change the world. 
person after person, page after page, is filled with men and women who were not perfect, who did not check all the boxes, but were simply willing. And God is saying, not only do you have a place in my kingdom, but I have a purpose for your life. Can we believe that? Can we believe that every person that we come into contact with, the people that we don't like, the people that it's hard to love, can we believe even they can be used by God? Even God, I mean, talking about Paul, in the Bible was Saul, and what was Saul's purpose and mission in life was to destroy Christians. I mean, he might be, I mean, this is a loaded word, but he might be a biblical example of a terrorist, right? I'm just telling you, I mean, what was his mission? To steal, kill, destroy all Christians everywhere. He traveled from town to town. Why? To destroy them, to kill them, to seek their destruction. And that's the person that God uses to reach. And really, much of, much of the New Testament that we read is because of that man. Why? Because God, even he, even Saul, could have a place in the kingdom of God. Even Saul, God could use. And so I think we have to begin believing that. We have, and if we don't, say, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to believe these people in my life are welcome and are called into the kingdom, are invited into the kingdom. And Lord, help me to believe that you have a purpose even for their life, that they are not too far gone. And if we can change our beliefs, if we can change our attitudes and our hearts, then man, the natural response is going to be the Lord is going to help us learn to love. Because it started in here. It started in here. Jesus' disciples were largely characterized not by who they were, but by who they were not. And they were not the elite. They were not the gifted. They were not the ones who had their act together, but these are the ones that Jesus used to carry the gospel to the world. Today, we may feel justified. We may feel justified considering people outsiders. Outside is where they belong. But remember, our call, our call is to be people of mercy. That's what Jesus, last week in the Good Samaritan story, he said, go be people of mercy. And again, he tells the religious leaders, I desire mercy. What does mercy do? Mercy means even when I am justified, I still offer love and forgiveness. Even when there's, I've drawn the line and there's a reason. I feel justified in that. Mercy says, but because of the mercy extended to me, because of the love of Jesus poured out in my heart, I, I love anyway. I forgive anyway. Go be people of mercy. Um, a leader, a pastor, speaker that I listen to a lot of messages and podcasts, he, he said something once that's always stuck with me. He was talking to a group of leaders, and he said, um, I, I want you to think about what it is at the end of your life that you want people to line up and thank you for. That's a deep thought. <laughs> That's a deep thought. Think about what it is at the end of your life that you want people to line up and thank you for. And it was a powerful illustration of a lot of things, but I'm here to tell you this past week, I got to be a part of kind of witnessing that. There's a couple in our church, Gary and Donna Haney, who've attended here for several years, and I've gotten to know them way before that, and I've gotten to be a part of their lives. Just great, godly people come here faithfully, part of a life group, a great part of our church. And Donna, for several years now, has been battling cancer, and Donna's just such a positive person. You would never know that. You would never know what's going on within her, or maybe some fear that she's facing, because she's just so encouraging to others. And over the last few weeks, it just became apparent that her journey, her battle, was not, she was not going to experience healing here on earth. That just was not God's will for her. 
And so as the family began to gather around, and I got the opportunity to visit a few times, and this past week, we gathered for the celebration service of the passing of Donna Haney. I was blessed to be able to be there and help be a part of the service, but the service was really different, and the family, what they wanted to do is rather than a typical, I've been to a, I've been to a lot of funerals, but rather than that, what they really wanted to do to celebrate her is they literally just had two microphones. And for 40 minutes, they just passed the microphones around, and anybody could say anything they wanted to. It made me really nervous, quite honestly. I was like, how's this going to go? But it was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever gotten to be a part of. Because really, what happened is person after person would stand up, and one person said, I knew Donna as a kid, as a teenager, I didn't know Jesus. But she was determined to keep inviting me, and the reason that I know Jesus today, and he had his wife stand up, the reason I'm in a godly marriage today was because of Donna Haney. Another person stood up and they said, you know, Donna was not perfect, but Donna was so good at forgiving. She was always so quick to forgive. Another person stood up and they said, how many times that even when Donna was going through cancer, she would send them encouraging notes and she would encourage them. And other people stood up and said, when nobody else would welcome me, man, Donna always invited me to her home. And time after time, beautiful stories of people standing up, celebrating the life lived for the glory of God. I don't know about you, but me, I try to put myself in that, not in a weird, morbid way, but I just try to think about what is it at the end of my life that I want people to line up and thank me for? You know what it's not? It's not, wow, Adrian was the most religious person I've ever met. I mean, he kept every law. He didn't break anything. I mean, he was the perfect example. I mean, nobody would say that about me anyway, right? But, but oh, he was perfect. He did everything right. He modeled everything perfectly. You know what I want them to do at the end of my life? I want people to pass the microphone around and say, man, Adrian, he was a person of mercy. He was a person of mercy. There were so many times he could have drawn the line. There were so many times where he could have been so uncomfortable to help someone, to love someone, to reach across. But man, he chose to be a person of mercy. That's who he was for the glory of God. That's who we're called to be, people of mercy, even when it's messy, even when it's uncomfortable, even when we have to pray and say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but this is who you're calling me to be. May we be people of mercy in this world. I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads for a moment. I want to pray with you today. I want to pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, I so appreciate Pastor Joe praying and reminding us that the Spirit of God lives in us, the same Spirit that lived in Jesus, that gave him power, and, and that the resurrection power of Jesus, that power is available to us. And so we don't take on this kind of stuff. We don't take on the work of the kingdom on our own strength. And quite honestly, you and I are not strong enough to love this way on our own. It's agape love. It's perfect love that we're talking about today. It's only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only possible as God pours his love into us. So today, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to pray. I want to pray that we together would be known as people of mercy. We would be known as people who are so grateful for the love that has been poured out for us. We're so grateful that we have been forgiven. We're so grateful that even in our sin, Jesus came and died, that we cannot help but love the world around us in the same way, even when it's messy, 
Even when it's uncomfortable, we're going to cross the barrier. We're going to figure out how to show the love of Jesus. We may not give in to sin, but we may not give up on love. That is our mandate and that is our call. So Jesus, now we pray and ask your help. Where we would want to be quick to turn the page. Where we might want to be quick to ignore some of what Jesus said to us because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Help us not to manufacture that kind of a gospel. Because we believe your gospel is the power, is the power that this world needs. It's the power of salvation. It's the power of transformation. But Lord, help us to be people of mercy. That though, though we would feel justified in our defense, though we would feel justified in our attitudes and in our hurt and in our bitterness and in our, Lord, we would be people of mercy because of your spirit living in us. Lord, if we're honest, we're a little uncomfortable. We don't know what this is going to mean. We don't know who we're going to have to talk to. We don't know how we're going to love, but that's where we're asking your spirit to lead us and guide us now. We cannot do it without you but you promise we don't have to. You promise that you're with us. So we would ask you, Lord, even now, to walk with us to be the people that you've called us to be in a world that you died to save. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Through the power, <laughs> the power at work in us, we can do what he's called us to do. He is not calling us to do anything that he does not give us the power to be able to do. Thanks again for listening today. Email us at info at with any questions about our church. We have two gatherings every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. and a third gathering at 11.45 in Spanish. We are at 1871 Boyers Road in Rockingham, Virginia, and we would love for you to join us. As soon as you're finished listening today, please subscribe to this channel for updates and new episodes.